Landon Donovan, or things on here for the USA. Now here come Watford. Manchester City are still alive here. Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, but Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Here's Hawk! Dini! Balotelli, Aguero! Go, go, USA! Do not scratch your eyes. You are really seeing the most extraordinary finish here. Hello and welcome to the Run of Play podcast. As always, I'm your host, Spencer Papsiak. Joining me from Davidson, North Carolina is Ryan Almeida. Ryan, how you doing today? I'm great, Spencer. How are you, man? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited about the stuff we're going to talk about today. We're going to recap those last three Euro games. We're going to dive into some MLS, something we haven't really gotten into yet. On this podcast, I know you're excited about that. And then we're going to talk some Premier League. We got some really good questions coming up at the end of the show. But as always, we got to plug ourselves and the people associated with us. And Ryan's coming through in the clutch with those Twitter details as usual. Ryan, what are the Twitters saying today? Yeah, I mean, as you guys remember, big summer transfer move. Uh, we're part of Young Speak Network now, uh, a website and media network devoted to sports, politics, and pop culture, covered all by people under the age of 25, so for millennials. So you can follow at real underscore Young Speak to find our podcast and lots of more really cool stuff that's written on the site. Um, and, you know, as always, at Run of Play Show is our account. We've got our coverage, our tweets, GIFs, everything you can want. Absolutely. So follow us on Twitter. And of course, we are on iTunes and SoundCloud. Those haven't gone anywhere. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes if you are on Team Apple. If you're not, check us out on SoundCloud. You can like and subscribe and listen there as well on any device. Ask us questions. We always want to hear from our listenership. We want to interact and we want to give back to you guys through analysis and question answering so please ask away we want to hear from all of you that out of the way ryan we got some juicy stuff to cover today we're gonna dive quickly into the euros and then exit that talk some mls but first we need to recap what went down since our last episode when we left you guys there were four teams remaining and now there's only one team remaining because of course portugal has won the Euro 2016 Championships. Uh, they went through Wales 2-0 in the semifinals, and France beat Germany 2-0 in the other semi. Um, you really got to think, Ryan, based on those two games, the best two performers of those two semifinal games made it through to the final. There, there wasn't anything fluky about either of those two 2-0 wins. No, yeah, and I agree. And I mean, you can look at the stats and argue that maybe Germany dominated in terms of possession and shots in that France game. Coming out of the second half, never looked like scoring. France was on cruise control for a large portion of that game, and I think deserving winners. And when you look at Portugal-Wales, I mean, Portugal was the better team out and out. Yeah, they, I think, really outclassed the Welsh there. So they move on to the final, and it is Portugal versus the home nation France. And Portugal won 1-0 extra time off a 109th minute goal by Adair. Ryan, what did we think of that game uh, just kind of as a, as a spectacle, as a sporting event, as a final? Was, were you impressed? Were you not impressed? Uh, what, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, so 
extremely impressed with Portugal's mental fortitude and cohesiveness as a unit throughout that game. I mean, when you talk about adversity in a final, losing one of the best players in the world, the centerpiece of your team, Cristiano Ronaldo, early on in that match against the favorites of the tournament at their home stadium with arguably the most talented roster, it pulls a lot. It takes a lot to pull off what they did, and you have to give enormous credit to them. Um, this, I know there's a lot of talk about this tournament having been not great and this final being an example of low quality, not entertaining football, and I really just can't buy into that. I think this game had the caginess of a final that we would expect, and I think it provided a lot in terms of entertainment, especially for considering the fact that it was a 1-0 game where Portugal wins an extra time. So I was personally very pleased with the tournament as a whole and this result in particular and the way this final was played. But I know that there have been lots of people saying otherwise. Yeah, I'm going to say otherwise. Uh, That game bored me to death. Um, Ronaldo got injured and left, and then I felt like you could have just hit the snooze button from there until the eventual extra time goal. There were a couple moments of excitement, but... You know, all in all, I thought I thought that was a pretty pretty boring game, um, considering you know what we saw in the Copa America final for comparison, where that was just kind of that was kind of back and forth, similarly low scoreline, but just in the amount of excitement um, going back and forth, I thought that this was a bit of a, a boring game. But nonetheless, Portugal gets the win. I'm glad the game did not go to penalty kicks. I don't really like to see that in finals. I'd, like if they got rid of the whole penalty kick idea for major finals, but I'm glad that we haven't seen that. I think we're seeing a trend of in the last few major tournaments that major major teams and major finals they really play games close to the vest for honestly the first ninety minutes. I mean we saw it in the World Cup final, we've seen it in the last two Copa America finals, we've seen it here. Ryan, do you think this is kind of a trend in soccer now that you know you play beautiful attacking soccer until you get to the semis or the finals and then you just park the bus and try not to make a mistake? Or has it always kind of been like this, do you think? Uh, I, I would lean on the side that it's always been like this, and I think this transcends soccer. I think this is a sports mentality that you could find in a lot of finals. I mean, it's a different story when we're talking about the championship of the Euros, the you know, ultimate game, the winner-takes-all match. And I've grown to expect that kind of caginess from teams playing in these, you know, final matches. Because, like you were just touching on, you don't want to make a mistake. You know, you don't want to show your hand too much. You know, this is it. I think while it's definitely not great for spectators at times, I don't think we should be surprised by the fact that we don't see this beautiful attacking football playing played in games like this. Um, I do have to say, I think a big difference between this and the Copa America final was that these teams were not particularly sharp in front of goal or in the attacking third at all. So while they may have created a comparable number of chances, the chances were not nearly as high quality and did not provide for good entertainment that you get in a nil-nil game that can be, you know, caging back and forth. But I think this isn't something we should be surprised by and nor something that is really an issue in football. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I agree on on those points. Obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo was a major storyline in this final. Uh, going in, he was the best player on either side of the ball uh, by a decent margin, and he was largely absent due to an early injury he picked up in the first half that forced him to leave the game. Ryan, what does this mean for Cristiano Ronaldo and his legacy in terms of having his name down as one of the all-time greats in the game of soccer. Uh, does it change your perception of him that he's won a major tournament now? And does the fact that he played a very small role in that tournament final change your perception at all? Uh, this does not change my perception of him at all. And I don't think it should change anybody's perception of him. He should and I think will go down as one of the all-time greats and probably should have even if he had not won this tournament. Um, the guy's pure quality on the field and you know what we saw in this final of anything is that he plays a big role in this team that people I think don't give him credit for and that is being a motivator, a leader. You hear the post-match comments from guys like Cedric after the game, talking about how Cristiano Ronaldo gave one of the best halftime speeches they had ever heard, how he was leading them through this game despite not being on the field when, you know, all the emotion of being taken off in a final like this, I you could expect it to get to players' head. And I think this just proved that Ronaldo is one of the best to ever play the game. And, I mean, when we're looking back on this, you know, not everybody's going to remember the details and everybody will look and see that he's won a tournament and think, Oh, he didn't, you know, he didn't play in the final. Um, but it's only going to be, it's only a good thing for his legacy that already should be cemented as one of the all time greats. That's Ryan's take. And I have to, for the most part, agree with that. I think it, it takes away a little bit of the, the luster of, you know, Ronaldo scoring the game winning goal in the Champions League, you know, oh, you didn't have that. You didn't have that. Ronaldo gets to take his shirt off moment in the Euros, like you got to in the Champions League this past year or in previous other tournaments. But he was still the best player on the best team in the tournament. He he was their MVP throughout that whole process. You know, whether he scored the final goal or not, um, he definitely deserves credit for that victory. And it it's a I don't think this is the best notch in his belt. Um, I think winning the Champions League is more impressive than this, but it is a very nice notch to have, especially for a guy that you know probably won't have that chance in, on the international scene again. Uh, Portugal yeah. is not as much of a world power as some other teams are, and it's hard to imagine him getting another chance at a, at a final. So I was glad his teammates could pull through for him and he could still have that moment, even though he didn't get to take place. Uh, Ryan, i got to ask you one last thing about the Euros, and it kind of involves all the teams in the tournament as a whole. Do you think Portugal is actually the best team in Europe? Oh, God, no. Not, and not coming <laughs> from somebody who's Portuguese. I, I mean, you can't convince me that a team that only wins one game in 90 minutes uh, throughout this entire tournament is talent-wise, and the best team in Europe. They made the most of this tournament, which, you know, 
crowns them champions of Europe, and you have to give them major props to that, especially considering I think a lot of people are writing them off. And like you're saying, they're you know they're not like a world power when we think of the world powers of football. Portugal's not the first team that comes to your mind, um, and I think roster wise, teams like Germany and France and Spain and Belgium are player for player much better than Portugal. But that, I don't think that should take away from what they've accomplished by any means. But no, I don't think they're the best team in Europe. Absolutely. And people people forget the route that the Portuguese took to this final. And they almost didn't make it out of their group. They were drawn into a group with Hungary, Iceland, and Austria. Portugal was in a very crazy final match against Hungary where they ended up drawing 3-3, which capped off three straight draws and if Hungary pulls that game out, a game that Hungary led at multiple times, uh, Portugal doesn't even make it through to the knockout stages, much less, you know, to the final and to the championship. So it, it was not a dominant performance from front to back. And I, I agree with you. I don't think they are the best team in Europe, but I would put them in the top four or five right now for sure. Uh, maybe top top three or four. I, I think... I think they are they are an excellent cohesive squad, but I just don't think they're at that elite level like a Italy or France or a Germany. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. And uh, it's interesting you talked about the three three draw with Hungary and how they barely made it out of the group. And I I know a lot of analysts, specifically one who comes to mind, Ian Dark, who you know called the champ uh, the Euro final um, on ESPN, was citing that as a reason that twenty four teams in the Euros was not the sign of a good tournament and like that the fact that Portugal was almost eliminated and would have been eliminated the old format means that like this tournament was a failure and I don't know what your thoughts are on that but I personally think that's hogwash well I I for one you have to look at it from different perspectives and you have to think that yes Portugal would have been eliminated under the old format however you would not have had the Cinderella stories of Iceland and Wales and some of the other teams that made deep runs into this tournament like Ireland or Northern Ireland. And it was just really good to see more teams get more of a chance to move on and more teams in the field to begin with, not even uh, even before they got to the knockout stages. And I'm always a fan of more soccer. I don't know about you. Yeah, but I am too. I always want to watch more soccer. And I did not think that this tournament was large to the point where it seemed like there were too many teams going through and too much going on. Um, I thought it was a, a really well-sized and well-done tournament. And hey... There were four third-place teams that made it through to the knockout stages, and only one of them won their game in the round of 16. Granted, that was Portugal who went on to the final, but I think, based on Ian Dark's comments, that we should look at this from the opposite perspective of there are so many good teams out there that even a team that might have been on the brink of elimination in an older format even has the potential to win the tournament. So... I think that's a sign that they should include as many teams as possible to give more teams a chance to win because there are a ton of really good soccering countries out there, especially in a place like Europe. So it gives everybody a chance to see more players and more teams, and I'm all for it. Yeah, I really I really like that perspective. I think that that is absolutely the way we should look at it. And 
I think you're comparing apples and oranges too when you talk about oh what they would have been in the last tournament because that's not what this tournament was. I mean, they didn't need to not come in third to make it through. You know, like they they like they did what they had to do to win the tournament, and I think the way you just put it was perfect. So when we start allowing third place finishers in groups through to the knockout stages of the World Cup, Ryan, that that's when I will draw the line. But for now, I am all for this. Let there be more teams in the knockout stages. Ryan, that that's it for international soccer for this what summer. What so fast? Oh my gosh. We had Copa America. We had the Euros. And now we are transitioning into club soccer, whether that be the Premier League, other European leagues, or MLS. Uh, we're looking forward into the club soccer season. And of course, those pesky World Cup qualifiers the U.S. has against these small Caribbean nations this fall. Don't worry, we have not forgotten about that. However, we have no immediate international soccer to talk about for what seems like a couple months, so that's going to take a back seat, and we're going to dive into some great club soccer coverage. And Ryan, before we get into any specific stuff about specific MLS teams or players on future episodes. I wanted to talk a little bit about Major League Soccer as a whole and where we are standing as Americans with a domestic league in relation to a lot of other leagues in the world and namely a couple big points and talking points that been going on for quite a while within MLS and those two talking points are expansion and the implementation or lack thereof of promotion and relegation from MLS. So I want to talk about both of these things and first I want to add a little background on MLS expansion because that's the first thing we're going to dive into here. So it got me thinking this week as my hometown team that has yet to take the field, they will next spring. Atlanta United has been signing some decently large names. They just uh, signed Trinidadian striker Kenwin Jones to a, a contract that will not be a designated player contract. I'm very happy about that. But I was thinking about Atlanta being in addition to the league as well as Minnesota United moving up. To MLS, Los Angeles Football Club moving up, as well as expansion talk about teams in Miami, Cincinnati, St. Louis, Phoenix. I mean, you can pretty much, Ryan, look at a point on a map, and there's been a team discussed for MLS somewhere near your finger. And I think this really points to the growth of soccer as a whole in this nation, and the fact that you know, MLS has the luxury of expanding because soccer is having the luxury of expanding in places where it's never been before. And it's really exploding in certain communities that, you know, may surprise people. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, USL side Chattanooga FC getting like 9,000 people to a playoff game like last year. That was, I mean, this stuff is catching steam, you know, real fast. It's, and, it's really exciting time to be a fan of the league and there's just a world of possibilities through expansion and I'm really excited to see you know where it's going to lead us. Yeah one of the cooler stories that I've seen this year is Cincinnati's uh, USL team which plays in the third division of soccer in the US and they have been the subject of some expansion talks 
and the fans and supporters of the team decided to take that matter into their own hands and prove that they deserved an MLS team, and they have been pulling in 20,000 plus, and in some occasions, 30,000 plus fans for third division soccer in the United States. That is just awesome to hear. So as of two years from now, Ryan, the MLS will be up to 24 teams from 20, which is what it sits at now, with I believe two teams moving into the Western Conference, two teams moving into the Eastern Conference, which we put 12 in each conference. I have a few questions about this, namely involving the size of the league. Is 24 the right amount of teams? Do you think there should be more teams or less teams? And granted, when you look at soccer leagues across the world, you rarely see more than 20. I know there are more than 20 in the English Championship in League One, which are the leagues under the Premier League, but in terms of top flight soccer, the Premier League is about as big as you will get with 20 teams. However, the geographic issues in the United States are a little different than that in England, and I think more teams cuts down more on travel between sites, and that is a big issue that U.S. faces. Ryan, what do you think the right amount of teams for MLS is, and do you think 24 is that number? I, I tend to think that, honestly, when we're talking about Major League Soccer, which is in itself a very unique sports league, and when compared to world football, unlike any other in terms of its role in sports culture in the country, I think more teams is a good thing for this league. And I think 24 is a great number, but there's no reason to stop there if more teams is economically viable. And I'd go as far to say as like 32, that's not unreasonable. If they get the markets and they can, you know, find proven fan bases to support new franchises, I don't see why they need to stop at 24. And, you know, the, the rise of MLS is really, really linked, as we were, you know, just touching on earlier, with the rise of soccer as a whole in this country. And I think leagues like, you know, the Premier League and, you know, the Spanish League, the Bundesliga, you know, they have the luxury of being selective with, you know, their fan bases and with their franchises and that prestige of maybe, you know, having dead set 20 teams, you know, these are the 20 that will be in the top flight. And when it comes to the United States, I think the spread of new soccer culture across, you know, all sorts of areas in this country is only positive for the sport. So I think more, more, more is good for me. Yeah, and a good thing, once you get up to 28, 30, 32 teams, the pressure for every single team to succeed kind of goes down a little bit in terms yeah. of financial and fan sustainability, because when you have 32 teams and one team folds, that's not a huge issue because there's probably a city waiting to have another team. And the MLS has been very selective about the cities and fan bases and owners that they go into talks with because they don't want franchises to fail this early in the league. And yes, the league is getting to be, you know, it's it's over 15 years old now, but that's still very young in terms of building soccer fan bases in the United States. One question, Ryan, that people bring up a lot of times is talking about how U.S. soccer and MLS is franchising in a lot of these teams, and they are just simple expansion teams where they get 
a draft and just get to sign players and start off at equal footing with all the other MLS teams. A lot of people are are asking for promotion and relegation in MLS. Pretty much the MLS losing a couple teams to a lower division every year, but a couple teams getting promoted. The proponents of this say that this will increase TV viewership and fan attendance at games for lower-ranked teams, and it will pressure owners and managers to not tank and really force the players to try hard throughout the whole season, which kind of might be a little bit of an issue on some of the worst-performing teams in MLS. Others on the other side of the issue say that it is too much of a risk to have a major fan base or key city in the United States lose an MLS team and have them go down to a lower division, and that it would hurt the development of soccer too much that the loss of losing a couple teams a year wouldn't be um, as good as the gain of gaining a couple teams a year. With that said, Ryan, where do you stand on this issue? Do you think that promotion and relegation is something that should be implemented as soon as possible to MLS? Or is this something to address further down the road? Or is this just an inherently un-American sporting ideal that should never be implemented to MLS? Um, I mean, being, you know, a fan of world football and, you know, watching the major leagues in Europe and, you know, throughout the globe. I love promotion relegation in the accountability it brings to teams that, you know, are at the lower end of the table and the opportunity for smaller franchises to really make a name. Um, and I think the United States, in theory, could have one of the best promotion relegation, you know, systems ever made in a perfect world. But... Major League Soccer is not currently headed in that direction. It would take major revamping of the league structure and in the sense that the league itself is an entire entity, not, you know, individual teams, you know, conforming like a collective alliance that is Major League Soccer. Um, And I think this is not only like way down the road, but like something that even if it were to be decided on today that this would be in our future, would not be you know, put into place for years to come. Because I think the United States, while it has, you know, I think it's building the lower, smaller team fan bases, you know, USL is growing, Nasal is growing, MLS is growing. This would take a major revamping of, like, the way Major League Soccer is run. And I think it's way too early for this to be considered, you know, a viable possibility in the United States right now. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. A lot of what I've read is that if they are going to go to a promotion and relegation system, that they have to do it now because the league is expanding. And once you get to 30, 32 teams, and if you want to cut that number back down to 20, that means restructuring things and sending 12 teams down. And that just that just becomes a very bad idea and bad experience for everybody involved. So from what I've heard is that they should cap it at 24 and then start from that point. Me personally, I don't think that's a smart idea. I don't think it'll help anything in terms of the soccer development in America. While the MLS would have a chance to be the only promotion relegation sport in America, they already stand out as being the only major soccer league that doesn't have that. And I think that might be just as you know quirky of a thing as 
having it in America would be. I do think that this is in the cards for American soccer, but I'm thinking 30, 40 years down the line, a point where owners and managers of teams would join together and kind of get rid of the MLS and create their own football association, if you will, that kind of governs all football in the U.S., much like the FA does in England. So I think it would take a massive restructuring on the level that the Premier League undertook, what was it, about 20 years ago? Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, it would take something on that level, I think, to change promotion and relegation in soccer in the United States, because as long as the MLS is in charge of the MLS, promotion and relegation will not be a thing. We will continue to have franchises, which I think is good, but not as exciting for me as a fan. There are so many soccer fans who can just, you know, envision just how cool it would be to have promotion and relegation work in a perfect system in the United States and to see, you know, teams like the Colorado Rapids of last year, you know, be fighting for their lives while younger, you know, smaller teams like, you know, the New York Cosmos and like the Rochester Rhinos, you know, are like gunning up there for promotion. But I mean, there's, you know, this is a business too. And there's an economic side to this that like people have to consider. And, you know, you talk about the money that this is something that coaches in Major League Soccer, uh, Grant Wall had done um, for Sports Illustrated, he had done an interview of Major League Soccer coaches where he just basically asked their opinions on this. And a common theme throughout the coaches' responses was that, you know, Major League Soccer is a business where billions of dollars have been invested. And teams, you know, owners that have invested billions of dollars into their teams don't want to see them go down, you know, in their first season in the league because they struggle to find their footing. And suddenly, you know, their whole market tanks because their brand new fan base doesn't want to see their brand new team play in the division, you know, division two of American soccer. So there's a lot of, you know, nuances to this that have to be considered, but I really think your take on it is good that it'll take total, you know, total redoing of like soccer's government body as a whole in the United States and something that would really be analogous to the way the Premier League revamped itself 25 years ago. If you look at, for instance, Newcastle this past year, Newcastle United in the Premier League, one of the original founding members of the Premier League, you know, a classic club, huge fan base, they get sent down to the championship. You know that they're going to be selling out their stadium just as much as they were in the Premier League because Absolutely. those fans are rabid and they want to see their team move back up. Now compare that to the Chicago Fire who yeah. one of the worst teams in MLS that have trouble even getting a couple thousand fans to a game, much less selling out a stadium. If we had a promotion and relegation system either last year or this year, they would not be playing in MLS or they would be on their way down to a lower division. And you have to think, if the Chicago Fire go from MLS to whatever the second division would be, that franchise is folding because that's not that's not a sustainable team as it is right now, hardly. And it would definitely not be in a second division. Now, I think if the Portland Timbers or the Seattle Sounders or the LA Galaxy got relegated, yeah, they probably would still pull in tons of fans. But those are the exceptions and not the rule. And it just takes a a certain level of MLS fandom and fan bases and popularity in the United States, something that I don't think we're going to see for a generation at least. And that's you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line where you have the kids of the current fans, you know, being paying fan members and being season ticket holders. And it just will take a couple of generations like that 
to build the soccer fandom where we can sustain that. However, it's something that I would want to see long term. You know, I do want to see promotion relegation battles between New York and L.A., you know, when I'm 65 years old in my recliner. Hopefully retired. Probably not. But Fingers crossed. That's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. And as much as it would be exciting, I think we can all recognize that, that would be a major detriment to the development of soccer in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it, but having, you know, been a longtime Rev supporter, we're talking about one of the original teams of Major League Soccer, I don't think people would drive to Foxborough, Mass, to go see them play against the Jacksonville Armada in Division Two. You know, nasal soccer. It's just not going to happen for franchises that aren't, don't have the followings that Seattle or LA do. And unfortunately, there's just not enough of those teams right now. Although, you know, the fan bases are growing, we're just not there yet. Absolutely. And as a guy whose city, Atlanta, is just about to start a new team, uh, I don't think it would go over as popularly if the marketing campaign was, hey, come watch these guys, and in four or five seasons, we might make it all the way up to the top. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not how you go about things. And I think, you know, for all the criticisms that people have of MLS, they're, for the most part, going about this the correct way in terms of building a culture and a business model. Like you've been saying, this is a business that has to be sustainable. People invested billions in, and we need to keep it that way. So that is our MLS talk for now. Uh, We're going to pause briefly for a quick sponsor's message and then move on to our ever-popular and exciting three questions series. We've mentioned it briefly before, but I'm going to talk about Young Speak. The Run of Play podcast is one of several Young Speak podcasts that you can find at youngspeaknews.com. Most of mainstream media is run by those that are 40-plus years of age, but what about the opinions of us millennials, Ryan, YoungSpeak is a news website featuring writers only 25 years or younger, whether it be sports, pop culture, or politics. YoungSpeak is providing multiple avenues for you to be entertained. Ryan, they're talking about us. We're the millennials here. You can yes, read, we are. You can read our take, well, not specifically ours, but millennials' takes on this year's election, or even listen to why Deadpool is or isn't the best movie of 2016, not to mention Ryan and I's hot takes about MLS expansion and the Euros. So if any of that interests you, please go follow at real underscore youngspeak on Twitter, or just search youngspeak on Facebook to follow all of the site's content there. Again, that's youngspeaknews.com. Our podcast is on that site along with several others. They are posting podcasts, articles, tweets, and much more every day. Remember, age is but a number. There's that, and now we are moving on to our three-question series. And Ryan, guess what? Oh boy, here we go. We got a listener question. So excited. All right. This is first one, hopefully first of many, and we are going to try not to screw this up horribly. This question was so good, we thought we would build our whole three-question series around the themes and ideas discussed in this question, and TJ Silva, at TJ underscore Silva4, reached out to us on Twitter, and he said, any thoughts on Conte moving from Leicester to to Chelsea and how it will affect Leicester in the Champions League this year. TJ, thanks for the question, and we are going to tackle this 
for those that want some background on this, Leicester City, the cha- the Premier League champions from last season, they had three big players, three big cogs in their effective system. Jamie Vardy, Riyad Mahrez, and Nagolo Kante. Those were their big three. Vardy and Mahrez were more exciting attacking players. Kante was the defensive midfielder, the Frenchman, the engine that ran this whole team. And now they have lost Kante with a big money transfer to Chelsea. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think for Leicester, this move is going to hurt a lot. And I know that's not what anybody wants to hear after them being just such the incredible story they were and how really awesome it was to watch Kante, Vardy, Mahrez, you know, their big three. But this guy was the, you know, I think sometimes understated heart and soul of this team who didn't always grab the headlines, but he did everything right all the time. And, I mean, he led Europe's big leagues and interceptions, tackles. He was a beast in the midfield. And Chelsea have to be licking their lips, you know, having, having this movement completed. And I think it's really going to hurt Leicester, you know, playing a really full schedule next year with the Champions League and defending their title in the Premier League. You know, now they've got a big target on their backs. He's irreplaceable. I, I, is that too strong of a word to use? I don't know. I mean, we haven't seen a guy put up those kind of numbers from such like an obscure, really unknown player prior to this season. I think in a really long time, there's nobody who comes to mind really for me in the way that he did. And I think this is great news for Chelsea and Leicester fans are going to have to hope that Claudio Ranieri has got some more tricks up his sleeve. Well, yeah, you talked about those stats, and some of that was a product of scheme and position and how much playing time that Conte got. But a lot of that was just what he does as a player. And Leicester, they got criticized a ton for just kind of playing an ugly style, not taking possession and trying to win on the counter. But they provided some of the best highlight packages of the whole year. You know, those those great highlights where Mares would get it wide and he'd send balls into Jamie Vardy and Vardy would score. But... Almost every single one of those beautiful counterattacks started with Conte either making a key pass, tackling and winning a ball, or intercepting a pass deep in Leicester's defending third. And if you look at the three guys that we mentioned, Vardy, Mahrez, and Conte, I think Conte was the one that Leicester couldn't afford to lose. That they, yeah. this, He was the guy, if you said... You know, you can only keep one of these three. I think he was the most important one for them to have, and it's really going to hurt Leicester in the Champions League and in their other competitions. And I do want to talk a little bit about Leicester as a whole and what they have done in terms of additions to their squad. Conte is their first big departure. Ryan, last year they didn't really have much turnover in their squad. They didn't. They didn't make cup runs. They didn't have the Champions League or the Europa League. They just had to focus on the Premier League. And they did not have much change in their lineup from a week-to-week basis. They more or less kept the same guys out there, especially down the end of the season. And they were very fortunate with a lack of injuries, among other things. But that won't fly this year, especially if they want to go after the Champions League and try to do well in the Champions League. That's just not going to happen. They need major reinforcements in central defense and in midfield. They've made a few savvy signings of veteran players on free transfers or 
very small transfers. They got some young people coming in, but they need a big name or two now. This is where they need to make that splash signing. They need to sign that big name defender, big name midfielder, because you know they got that new money from winning the Prem, and they have Champions League money coming in, and they just they just got money from the Conte transfer, so that shouldn't be an issue. They need to go after a big name because. I think the trend of signing kind of the underrated guys isn't going to work long term, especially when they get into the thick of the schedule in the fall with the Champions League group stage games. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And I mean, this is to take nothing away from what they accomplished last year because what they did was by no means a fluke and what they did was, you know, absolutely outstanding and all the credit in the world should go to them for that. It's not going to work again this year because as I was saying earlier, I mean they've got a target on their backs now. There's no no team is going to take them lightly. Every game against Leicester City is going to be, you know, no longer the game against the sneaky good, you know, up and coming, why are they still this high up in the table team? This is like the defending champions. And they need to take advantage of where they are right now to cement themselves as a power in the Premier League. Because, you know, it's only going to take one, maybe two bad seasons before they're off the map, you know, in terms of powers in the Premier League if they don't make big moves and if they don't make strong replacements for guys like Conte and whoever else. I know there's rumors of Mahrez deciding to leave. And I think, like you were saying, the time to capitalize is now, and they need big players to fill those holes. Otherwise, we're not going to see another Cinderella story from Leicester City. I have to look at their squad, and it's a little scary, because what if someone like Wes Morgan gets injured, and what if Danny Drinkwater goes out, okay? So you're down those two guys, and all of a sudden you're relying on some unproven players in big Champions League games and they need to sign some veteran talent. And I'm sure they they will because the story of what their front office has done has been very impressive. But I think that Leicester City will descend into oblivion. They will never touch the top of the Premier League table again if they don't do well in something next year. Whether that's getting to the final or winning the FA Cup, whether that's finishing back in the top four of the Premier League, or whether that's making it deep into the knockout stages of the Champions League, it doesn't matter which one of those they do, but they have to do something well. They have to have something to build on from this year. Yeah, they might crash out in the group stage of the Champions League, but if they can point to the season and say, hey, we still finished in the top four in the Premier League because we focused on that, or, hey, we finished 10th in the Premier League, but you know we made the semifinals of the Champions League, and that's a pretty big accomplishment for our club. You know They have to be able to point to something after this season and say, we aren't a fluky team. This is We're here to stay. Because any team, well, not any team, but it's, it's not uncommon to have, for a team to have one fluky good season, but it's when you can start rattling off two, three, four, five solid finishes solid overall results in a row that's when we become a power so Leicester City needs to they need to make it happen in the front office and they also need to make it happen on the pitch this year in some form in some competition you're talking about getting results this year I think they have to contend for Europe if they're ever going to become a big team so to speak I mean Europe's got to be the goal Europa League is a big step forward for this team if they could maintain you know consistent pushing for Europa League 
you know, qualification. But if they don't, I mean, if they aren't able to contend for Europe in the next one, two seasons, I mean, I don't think the future is going to be ever as bright as it is now for this team. Because, I mean, look at teams like Fulham, who, you know, not that long ago were consistently pushing for Europa League football, and boom, they're off the map. I mean, you know, relegated, championship, nobody talks about them anymore. Yeah, because they're not doing well in the championship either. They were bottom of the near bottom of the table. They weren't relegated to League One, but they were near bottom of the table in the championship. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I mean... This is one of the most cutthroat leagues on the planet, and the turnaround can be like, you know, quick for these teams. And I think time is of the essence for Leicester, and results need to continue to come. They can't, they can't take this victory and not build off it and expect to be, you know, a power in the Premier League. Yes, because they're going to focus on the Champions League a lot. And you don't, oh, for sure. you don't want a bad result in the Champions League and then realize you focused in on that so much that you finish 12th or 13th in the table. You're nowhere close to sniffing that top half. And then things start to spiral down from there. I mean, we've seen it happen with so many teams in so many leagues. When you aren't at that elite level that Arsenal and Man United and Bayern are at and Madrid and Barcelona where you are so deep and you have so many players that you can rest most of your lineup and still field a world-class 11 for your you know, league game the next day or a couple days later, that's not at a level that Leicester City is at right now. And they, they need to get there eventually if they want to become a, a, a power. But frankly, I think if you could tell them that they would turn into kind of a Southampton or Tottenham-type team that sniffs the top of the table every couple of years and sits around 6th or 7th for the rest of their time, I think they would more than take that at this point. Speaking of finishes in the Premier League, Ryan, give us a number. Where do you think Leicester City, based on the signings that they've made up until this point, so just using the information you have and not guessing about anything, obviously this will change, but not guessing about anything, where do you think Leicester City will finish in the Premier League next season? Uh, I'm going to give them eight. I think they'll finish top ten. But I think the strength, I think what's really going to do them in is not even going to necessarily be their own struggles, but it's going to be the strength of their opposition. And I think teams like Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Tottenham are going to be too good. And they're going to be, you know, West Ham, too good. And I think Leicester City will perform. And I think... Claudio Ranieri will prove that, you know, last year was not a fluke and that this team is, you know, here to stay. Unless, you know, like you're saying, given the information we have now, given the roster they have now, they're going to need to make more moves if they want to challenge for a spot in Europe. So I'm going to go with eighth. Yeah, I'm, I'm so indecisive right now of where I think they're going to finish. I think with the squad they have now, I think that you're looking at a 14th or 15th place finish. I think that the the magic fairy dust in Leicester it has run up. They will finish in the bottom, well into the bottom half of the table. That can change depending on the signings they make. If they make a few, you know, key signings and it looks like they're up for this next season, I have no problem cutting that number in half and saying they're going to finish seventh or eighth or even sixth, sniffing at an Europa League spot. But I, I just don't see it right now, honestly. All right, question three. How do you think Leicester 
we'll do in the Champions League. So kind of the same as the last question, but involving the Champions League. Ryan, what do they do? Man, I don't want to... I don't want to kill everybody's spirit because, especially considering, you know, people well, like us last year. Well, I, 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 saying, just, I just killed everybody's spirit with that 15th place prediction, so <laughs> I think you're fine. Yeah, I mean, I think group stage will be the end of the tournament for Leicester City. I think it might be too much for them. And, you know, that being said, it would not surprise me if this team makes it out of their group, but... You know, this is a lot to ask of a team that is not that big. And, I mean, you know, like I was saying, like, people in our position last year would probably be saying the same thing and then, you know, would be proven horribly wrong when Leicester goes on and probably wins the Champions League with their hands tied behind their back and one eye closed. But, like, I have to think that, like, given the roster they have now and given just the inexperience of players being in this position, this isn't a team made up of Premier League winners who consistently play in Europe by any means. That group stage, they'll give it a hard fight, but group stage is where this is going to end for them. Well, I think they need to sign a few guys that do have that experience. For uh, sure. Not just flashy youngsters that need to be signed, but they also need some some veteran, veteran people in the in the clubhouse that, you know, they'll be able to, to, you know, even if they're on the bench or just in training, just be able to provide that, that Europe experience and that, that knowledge of what it takes to, to go far into the, the Champions League. I too think that they crash out in the group stage. I think they'll come in third place in their group. I think they'll go into the Europa League knockout stages because that's how that works for some reason. And then, I don't know, maybe win a matchup and then lose one. But I can definitely see a situation where they realize that the they're not going to qualify into the Champions League, and then they look up and they say, oh, crap, we're 12th in the Premier League right now, and they kind of mail in the last couple group stage matches because they know they're done, and they kind of mail in that Europa League and you know just play a bunch of youngsters and then really try to do the thing where they grind and focus on a good Premier League finish. And I was, I actually think that crashing out in the group stages here is going to really help them in terms of how they do in the Premier League. I think that their success in the Champions League and their success in the Premier League are inverse functions of one another. And as far as they'll go in one, as low in the table as they are in the other, and vice versa. So it might be for the best that they don't make that deep run this year because it'd be nice to see Leicester playing some semblance of European football for a second straight year. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I mean, it, it, it feels hard for me to write off this team when, you know, we've had the likes of them, Iceland, I mean, Wales, the yeah, Philadelphia, and like also, and who Colorado. Knows, like, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, we're saying this, this, is, sure. this is a best guess. They could sign some ridiculous players and then decide to top their group and come in third in the Prem and then, you know, go to the semis of the Champions League. Like we don't know, but this is our I'd best guess. Oh, oh yeah. We're we're not we're not hating on them. We just we just don't think the probability of it happening twice is very high. No, nah, it's nothing personal, Lester, no. but it's it I don't think it looks good at this moment. No, and if you disagree with us, come fight us on Twitter. We fighting, yeah. Ryan. We fighting. Yeah, fighting words. We're fighting. Okay, if you're mad, tweet at Ryan. Um, not me. 
Tweet tweet Ryan about this if you're upset because we fighting now. Uh, At Ryan J A three, I'll take it. I'll take yeah, anything. We a fighting podcast. That said, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Run to Play podcast. Ryan, any last words? Uh, this is awesome. All right, this is awesome indeed. Well said, my friend. Well said. Thank you for listening. Follow us, subscribe, check us out, and we will see you in a few days. Bye bye.